Robots Radio presents... Hey everybody, welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode! Today we are continuing our My Favorite Movie series, and we have on the line with us, all the way from Tennessee, Tim Pearsant, who is the CEO and co-founder of Chattanooga Whiskey. Tim, how are you today? What up, everybody? (laughs) (laughs) I... I can already tell that Tim is going to fit in quite well here on the Film and Whiskey podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm uh, to answer your question seriously, I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. All right. So, Tim, I just want to say up at the front, you know, we've we've had a lot of distilleries on the podcast doing interviews, and they're always kind enough to send us samples. I have to say your team at Chattanooga sent us what is by far the best sample package we have ever received. And that. Is the best compliment I've ever received. So thank you. It's, uh, like it's, honestly, doesn't, it doesn't get any better than that. I, I got the shipping confirmation from FedEx, and I think it said it was like nine pounds. <laughs> I, th- I thought you, I thought you shipped me like a severed head or something. I didn't know what was going to go on with this. I got home and I saw these these two beautiful bottles of Chattanooga ninety one and one eleven. And man, I can't wait to get into talking about this product with you today, Tim. I appreciate that. We, we, most of the time we, you know, the packaging and uh, everything that goes into it is, is worth sharing. That's why we don't like to package it up into little, you know, sample bottles and send it out that way. So, but I'm glad that you guys really liked it. It's awesome. So Tim, why don't you walk us through a little bit of the history of Chattanooga whiskey? You guys are making huge waves right now uh, in the bourbon world. You know, we're on Instagram a lot and we just, we see your product popping up all over the place. It seems like you're really building a following for a craft distiller. Can you take us back to how it started? 2011 is uh, when we began. We were uh, inspired by the history of whiskey in Chattanooga. When I say we, it was me and my co-founder. The history of whiskey is uh, very deep in Chattanooga pre-prohibition. It was illegal to distill here in most of the state of Tennessee. So we had to lobby to change those laws. We created a campaign called the Vote Whiskey Campaign. That took two years. It was in 2013 that that uh, bill was signed um, out of the 95 counties in Tennessee. The majority of them opened up to distilling uh, for the first time since Prohibition. Two years after those laws changed, uh, we were successful in building the first distillery in Chattanooga since 1915, and that was in 2015, so exactly 100 years. And then uh, that became the Chattanooga Whiskey Experimental Distillery which is where uh, we began exploring basically specialty malts in bourbon, along with several other processes such as longer, colder fermentation, lots of different types of yeasts, different barrel finishes. And throughout that process of experimenting with bourbon, we established what is uh, now known as the only Tennessee high malt whiskey, and that's the style of bourbon whiskey that Chattanooga Whiskey produces. We established one of the larger craft distilleries in 2017 that's about a mile away from the experimental distillery, so both are located in downtown Chattanooga. That is called the Riverfront Distillery. That's where we produce our flagships, which, again, were uh, came from the, the Barrel 91 recipe. What you guys received was Chattanooga Whiskey 91 and Chattanooga Whiskey 111, which are both uh, from that Barrel 91 recipe out of Experimental. So now we're just focused on, we're just hammering away at Chattanooga Whiskey 91 and Chattanooga Whiskey 111. And uh, those are four grain bourbons. Again, we call them Tennessee high malt because of the high malt, high specialty malt content. So there's out of the four grains, three of the grains are specialty malts. so you've got a, a nice foundation of non-GMO yellow corn that's uh, exclusively grown in Tennessee. 
And then on top of that, you've got malted rye, caramel malt barley, and honey malt barley. Um, so it's very unusual. You know, four grains are uh, are fairly rare. Uh, they're becoming more popular in the industry, but four grains made up of three specialty malts is very rare. And then, you know, we go above and beyond that to to bring out kind of the rich and complex flavors that come from a four grain, three malt recipe. You know, it's been a, a fun eight year journey with lots of ups and downs, but more ups than downs. And uh, now we're just trying to spread the word, spread the product. And so far it's going well. That's awesome. I feel like there's so many different directions that we can go in, in terms of asking follow-up questions. But before we do that, Brad and I have actually poured out the 91 and the 111 to sample while we're on air here. Brad, do you want to give any notes on this Chattanooga 91? Man, at, at a very basic level, I opened this up and you know we started with the 91 and then moved to the 111. And I just thought that, that this was a beautiful whiskey. There's there's so much going on. Like you said, that high malt really gives it a depth and a complexity to it that I was really surprised by. So the way that we like to kind of think about it is with a traditional straight bourbon whiskey that has traditionally three grains in it, which is usually uh, corn, rye, and a little bit of malted barley, or corn, wheat, and a little bit of malted barley, and then, of course, aged in a 53-gallon, you know, new American white oak barrel with a char on the inside of it for greater than two years. That's what makes up straight bourbon whiskey. Specialty malts and the additional steps that we do in the process create really more uh, more a richer flavor. So traditionally, bourbon is, is sweet. You know, the corn makes up a lot of that sweetness. And then rye is usually spicy. You know, if it's a weeded bourbon, it might be a little softer, maybe not quite as much flavor as rye. But then the malted barley is really just used for enzymes and breaking down starches for fermentation, et cetera. And uh, utilizing, uh, you know, a high level of specialty malts creates a, a richer flavor in the sense that it's more, it has depth of flavor, uh, meaning it's kind of darker, it's roastier, it's toastier. The caramel uh, notes are darker, more butterscotchy. Sometimes you, know, you get more of a chocolate note out of it. You might get a hint of smoke. So, there, you know, maybe maybe raisins, uh, kind of French toasty. Basically, all these, these kind of the deeper roasty toasty notes that you don't get out of a traditional bourbon whiskey. That's what we, uh, that's what we love about what we make. I I was taking notes on, you know, what I was getting on the palate when I was trying, especially the 111, and it ended up reading like a grocery list because it reminded me of so many different things. And it was bringing up like flavors from my childhood. I wrote down like Honey Smack cereal at one point. Yeah, on totally. Yeah. But the one note that I kept taking when I first got the bottle, I popped it open and tried it immediately. And it's probably been, I don't know, five, six weeks since then. And it still has. And I can't get over it. It. It smells like a piece of caramel cheesecake. It has this incredible, <laughs> like, creaminess to it. Yeah. And, and I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And then you give it a sip, and I can taste it on the flavor, too. I don't know how else to describe the smoothness of this 111, aside from it just has this sweet cream to it. Yeah, man. That's uh, that's what we love about it. Is, again, it just has a richness and a depth. I personally love cheesecake, so uh, that resonates with me for sure. <laughs> but um, I don't—I haven't had it since uh, I had a, had a neighbor when I was a kid. That every time my brother or I were sick, she would make us cheesecake. So like I have not—I haven't had—I <laughs> don't think I've had cheesecake since then. But like for 15 years, 16 years of my life, 
every year. I, I think I'd intentionally get sick like three or four times just to uh, just to have her cheesecake. So yeah, I'll take I'll take the cheesecake note all day. We've had quite a few distilleries come on the podcast, and you know Brad and I kind of talk off air about what our personal favorites are, and we've had a couple that are that have been in like the hundred and fifty dollar range, which are great bourbons, but you know they're just not an everyday sipper. And when we got this one eleven. I was really reluctant to even give any to Brad, if I'm being 100% honest with you. I (laughs) I wanted to make him drive to Tennessee and just buy some for himself because I honestly think that the 111 might be my favorite bourbon that we've ever had on this podcast. Man, that is awesome. Uh, So for seven years, I mean, leading up to, you know, the release of Chattanooga Whiskey 91 and 111, which was back in August, we were selling a uh, bourbon out of MGP. And um, in it, they make a really good bourbon. It's a three grain. It was 75% corn, 21% rye, and 4% malted barley. And uh, it won lots of awards at uh, competitions, tasting competitions. We, you know, having to sell that for seven years, while we were fond of it, uh, I oftentimes went home, you know, if I was going to drink a bourbon neat, it wasn't always 1816 it was and i you know i've got a a little collection i'm not a a huge collector but enough to where i I really enjoy trying other things i would pour four rows of single barrel or something else right and i could make an argument that a lot of those bourbons were better than 1816 i think 1816 held its own and was better than a lot of bourbons out there but now what's really fun about uh, about our jobs is that everything we've worked towards has become our has really become our favorite. I mean, I there's not there's not another whiskey on the market that that uh, I enjoy drinking as much as 91 or 111, and not even close. So I mean, I'm actually drinking 111 as I sit here and talk to you guys. It's uh it really is. It has a unique flavor profile that if you do a blind taste test, you can pick it out of a lineup really easily, which I love. Because you can't do that with a lot of bourbons. I mean, a lot of bourbons. I don't care. You guys are mentioning, you, you talk about price points. Line up a, a really good portfolio of bourbons everywhere from 25 bucks to 125 bucks, and do a blind taste with somebody. And, and you'll, there's lots of nuances. You'll be able to tell differences. If you're, <clears throat> if you're drinking those bourbons all the time and comparing them, then you might know which one is which. But if you're the average consumer, you probably won't. Yeah. But if you stick Chattanooga Whiskey, you know, for example, if you stick Chattanooga Whiskey 111 in there and you say, pick the one that is the most unique out of a lineup of straight bourbon whiskeys, it's going to be 111. It's got the most flavor. It's got the richest flavor. It's got, it's got the most depth. It, do, it stands out in a crowd and often it wins. Yeah, Tim, and I'm really curious. You've talked about this high, you know, specialty malt grain bill in your whiskey, and I'm curious if it's such a rare thing. Where did your team come up with the idea to use this unique of a batch of grains? It was inspired by our head distiller, Grant McCracken, who was uh, formerly a brewer. Uh, he was a well-regarded brewer within the industry. I mean, he had just gotten his uh, certification in distilling. And I think Grant saw an opportunity to be a part, uh, a, you know, a, a big part uh, in developing a product in the bourbon industry that, you know, could really continue that trailblazing. And, um, and so he, he took a lot of his brewing knowledge, I mean, across the board, you know, with, with grains, specialty malts, uh, yeasts, fermentation, et cetera, and applied that right off the bat 
And, and the, the nice thing was we had the experimental whiskey distillery to, uh, to be to that, that afforded us the opportunity to play and, um, and had a, had a, I think more than a hunch that it would create a deeper, richer flavor profile, though he was still very new to the distilling industry. And, and as we, you know, as we distilled these things, uh, the white dog, the white whiskey coming off the still was very interesting. Uh, a lot of it that we liked, some of it that we didn't. And then once we be- began to, uh, I mean, once we got them into barrels and began to taste them, you know, after a few months and a year and a year and a half and then two years, I mean, just, uh, just after a few months of tasting them as the, as really the oak flavor set in, we realized that we were onto something really good. Hmm. Yeah, you certainly were. And Tim, I could sit here all day and, and talk about your bourbon, uh, but I do, I want to get a quick uh, glance at the movie that you picked as your favorite movie. You know, we try to marry this idea of film and whiskey on this podcast, and so we asked distillers to come on and talk about their favorite films in addition to their whiskeys, and I was really, really pleasantly surprised to see what you chose to talk about today. So why don't you tell our listeners what movie we're going to be discussing? I mean, first of all, how can you be pleasantly surprised if, if if Christmas Vacation isn't in your top like four movies of all time? Then you have no sense of humor whatsoever, <laughs> like none. Or that, or maybe like you're you're not a big family guy. You know, I mean, who doesn't like sit with their family at some point and watch Christmas Vacation? And if you haven't, please start the tradition now because it's going to bring your family closer together. That's the best endorsement anyone could possibly give this movie, I think. I don't yeah, even know if we need home. to talk about it. Just it hits home. Uh, it just hits home with me, you know. It makes me feel like I'm uh laying on the on the the den floor with my uh with my brother and my parents growing up as a kid. Like every you know, it was a tradition, Christmas Eve, man, for like you know, for like eighteen years in a row. So it, it, the thing about Christmas vacation that I really like I'm a huge fan of the first vacation, you know, where they go to Wally World. But that movie is like <laughs> it's very R-rated. And oh man, and it's and it's and it's so non it's so not PC. It's hilarious. No, no. You look at that and you're like, you know what? I don't even think they would make a movie like that anymore. <laughs> oh, there's no way. But that's the thing about Christmas Vacation is, like you said, you know, I know kids that watch Christmas Vacation. It's like of that series, it's the one that like the whole family can get behind for sure. Oh yeah, totally. And every and everybody everybody has an Uncle Eddie. So, you know. <laughs> in their lives somewhere. All right. So Tim, if you had to pick like one scene from that movie that just always gets you when you're watching it at Christmas time, what what would be your favorite scene from that movie? I mean, so <laughs> this is if uh, if my dad ever listens to this, he's gonna laugh. But you know, there's a lot of things about uh about Clark that reminded me of my father. You know, I could just like totally like putting up the Christmas lights and putting up the Christmas tree. You know, I mean, I think uh, I I probably there's it's such a quotable movie that, you know, a uh, little full, a lot of sap. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how many times I've said that <laughs> thousands of times, like little full, a lot of sap. I was in the woods the other day and I was like, oh, you know, no, I wasn't. I was on a golf course and uh, and I really had to pee and, and it was and it was out in the open and there was like one little pine tree over there. And one of the guys was like just get as close. There were all, there were houses around everything. Like, just get, just get as close to that, to the center of that pine tree as you possibly can. And no one will see you. And I get in there and, and while I'm in there and I'm like, little fool, a lot of sap. <laughs> but, uh, so, I don't know, probably, uh, probably when cousin Eddie goes in, I said uncle Eddie here, but, but cousin Eddie goes in and kidnaps his boss and he goes, 
absolutely, you know, ape in the, in the living room in the, you know, in the process. Cause uh, I can identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not, you're not, not, I am, I'm talking about, I guess, I guess I'm talking about myself. I, I guess, I mean, you know, but uh, no, it's just funny. It's the, his, the sense of humor and, uh, and how he's like, you know, he's handy. Uh, he's smart and he's handy, but he's, but he's, you know, but he's not handy. And it's like, well, he's, why he tries to fix things, things break. Uh, the Pearson family, uh, can identify that with that very closely. So we had the same thing growing up. Like anytime something would break down on our car, you know, my mom would just be like, well, here comes the Griswolds again. It's just- <laughs> my dad is, is an amazing man. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I look up to him greatly, but there were, he's, he's a big car guy too. And, he always had like a hot rod in the garage that he was always working on. And, and, uh, what, you know, there was one day that something went wrong with the hot rod and we, and, uh, we, we, our family stood in the kitchen and we watched every single item inside the garage fly out of the garage into the backyard. So, uh, you know, it was <laughs> a, a Christmas vacation moment and I've, I'm guilty of many myself. So. Yeah. And what I love about National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is that, like like you said, not only is it a comedic classic, but it really does lean into the essence of Christmas that no matter what your family does, they're still your family and you spend Christmas with them. And it's just a great way to bring, you know, the people who mean the most to you together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another, you know, when, you, when you're, uh, when all the family is together, you just, you know, you guys, you're you're in it thick and thin. So, so you said that your your dad reminds you a lot of Clark Griswold, but uh, who are you in this situation? Are you the boss that gets kidnapped? No, man, no, it's definitely <laughs> not me. But I I am familiar with the boss that gets kidnapped. That's kind of that whole culture is is a dying culture. Thank God. So there's not there's not as many of those, or at least they don't last very long. If there are, man, if I uh, who can I I don't I don't know if I can. I guess I can identify as uh, Clark's son in in some ways, but um, I don't know if I identify with the character on there. Well, hey, that's okay because I mean I think all the characters have at least one huge drawback to them, so <laughs> so that's all right. But yeah. I really, I love what you were saying about you know the state of the industry and the culture of things like that now because we we really do see this happening with a lot of uh, craft distilleries that we've interviewed is that. There's this groundswell happening in in the distilling world, and it is earmarked by experimentation and openness and transparency, and it just really seems like, you know, the, the culture is shifting, and it's an exciting time for us, you know, to be doing what we're doing, and I, I hope it's this, uh, that you feel the same way as the, the leader of a craft distiller. Yeah, <clears throat> it, uh, transparency and authenticity are more important. Um, it's also, uh, which I think is really good. It's challenging people to put out higher quality products because, because it starts, because it starts with passion, right? If you're just trying to make money and that's the end game, then usually the passion is not there. That's a lot of that has, has shifted, I think in a very, in a very good way. So the bosses are, you know, not so, uh, prevalent anymore. I mean, Again, and I just can't, I, I can only really speak to my experience, but I just know that we have so many talented, unique, passionate individuals. If it weren't for their, you know, individuality and how they're uniquely passionate and skilled in what they do about, about what we do, then we wouldn't be where we are today. And I just can't imagine 
Uh, I mean, there's just absolutely no way that we'd be here without without that passion all the way through the organization. Tim, as we kind of wind down this interview, I, I do want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything that you'd like to get a plug in, you know, for the distillery or any products that you might have coming out as we get into the holiday season? I mean, I would say uh, if if you're looking to take a trip, come to the Chattanooga Whiskey Experimental Distillery. It's one of the top uh, attractions in Chattanooga. Chattanooga is a, a beautiful town and the flight is uh, extra tasty and the whole tour is very reasonable. And then, you know, go check out our website. We have lots of information about our website, our history, the products we create. So go to ChatternewWhiskey.com and then uh, follow us on social media. Instagram is uh, at ChatWhiskey, Twitter's at ChatWhiskey, Facebook, Chattanooga Whiskey. Well, Tim, we're just so thankful that you took the time to to chat with us. Um, you know, it's wonderful to talk about the importance of bringing family together, and then also to hear that the about the family that you've built at Chattanooga Whiskey. You know, it really does take so many special people to bring such a phenomenal product to market. So, just thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you having me, and I'm really glad you guys enjoyed the product. That has been Tim Pearson. He is the CEO, co-founder of Chattanooga Whiskey. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.